0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: Matthew 2, verses 1 to 11. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star, which they had seen in the east, and went on before them, until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so yesterday, was January 6th, was the celebration of Epiphany. Recognizing the insight of the wise men, that is, this is an epiphany, appearing to these wise men, very often they're depicted as three different races of people, representing all, you know, of the Gentile world, representing Gentile religion. We don't know even what their religion is. And the end point of their religion, of wisdom, of the wise men, brings them to the Christ child. I just looked up the dictionary definition of epiphany. And it's a usually sudden manifestation or perception of the essential nature of the meaning of something. An intuitive grasp of reality through something such as an event, usually simple and striking. At Christmas, Jesus is manifested to the shepherds, who represent Jewish outcasts. And on Epiphany, Jesus is manifested to the Magi, representative maybe of the best of non-Jewish religions. And throughout the story, the status of Judaism in regard to Jesus is a little bit suspect. They name Herod, and Herod, he's an Edomite, and he's made king by the Romans. And thus, some would read this as the fulfillment of Genesis 49.10, the scepter departed from Judah. It was a sign that the Messiah would come. And so these magi is the original, you know, the word we get, magicians. Maybe they're a learned class. They apparently practiced astrology. Maybe they were scientists, early day scientists. They're from the East. We don't know. Maybe Arabia, maybe Persia, maybe Mesopotamia. Maybe they're from different places. We say traditionally there's three of them because there's three gifts. But they say we have seen his star in the east. Maybe this is a meteor that appeared under some special laws, but it says clearly that they've come to worship him. And so they arrive in Jerusalem, and they just presume that all of Israel is going to be celebrating And they just ask around, well, tell us where he's born, you know. They just assume all in Jerusalem will know. They're clearly blind, even though they're wise men, to the evil of Herod. And to the ruling Jews, who in this story, you know, actually help Herod. It says, he gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together. And the class of the chief priests, you know, this included the high priest, but... Together, they, uh, those who had filled the office, they all gathered together. I guess basically he's having a theological convening and they tell him, well, Bethlehem. And of course, in telling Herod this, Herod is going to kill the children of Bethlehem. Later, the same group of people will condemn Jesus to die. They don't get him the first time, but they'll get him the last time. And so what we find in this story is that those who would seem least prepared, that is these Gentile astrologers from somewhere else, we don't even know where, are prepared to recognize Jesus. And those religious and theological authorities who we would have thought would be most prepared to recognize the coming of the Messiah they're quickly in a plot to kill him. You well, know, Herod tries to kill him immediately. But this is the mystery, I think, that is implanted in this story, but it is implanted in Scripture, in history, and religion from its earliest stages. That is, Jesus the Messiah, he's not just the Messiah for the Jews, but for all people. You know, one of the strangest episodes in the Bible is a person called Melchizedek in Genesis who predates Judaism. And we know that Abraham, who is the father of the Jews, comes and does homage to Melchizedek, who is described as a priest and ruler of Salem. And a kind of archetypical figure, look at Hebrews 7.3, it says, Without father without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Melchizedek religion, whatever that religion is, it precedes Judaism. And yet it moves directly to Christ. He's transformed, receiving all the qualities of God. He's likened to the Son of God. The experience of Melchizedek is open and available to all imitators of Christ, but of course Melchizedek is long before Christ. So there's a bit of a mystery. There's a universal openness to Christ, which the Bible continually hints at and certainly in the story of the epiphany of the wise men. God is working with all nations, and is bringing all people to him through Christ. And John tells us that Jesus is the light that lightens every man. And so the incarnation is not meant to show that all paths, you know, may lead to God, or that they're all equal, or the cosmic Christ can be found in equal measure everywhere, But just as the wise men followed their star and their religion to Christ, we can expect to find similar instances throughout the world, right? We know Judaism is preparation for the gospel and becomes, at the same time, an obstacle to the gospel. It's both things. So too, maybe with every cultural, every religious, every national identity, As Psalm says, God is calling the nations to Christ. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. And so the incarnation in various ways encompasses all of human history. Christ is for all people. I think that's the story of the three wise men. All of humanity, all people in their humanity, that Christ affirms people in their humanity while at the same time providing universal possibilities for salvation. And so in the New Testament, Jesus can talk to the Pharisee, Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman. He points beyond their religion, beyond the religion of Nicodemus, conservative Judaism, beyond the religion of Samaria. He can heal the gathering demoniac, And I guess he delivers him in some way from his religion. Jesus accommodates and affirms the diversity of humanity while also, I think, encountering and overcoming their destructive elements. And so there is the sense that each person, each individual person, and their experience concern Jesus more than their religion, more than their national identity. And so some people meet him in a synagogue, some in a temple, some, like Paul, on a journey to destroy Christianity. And we know today there's a a mass movement among Muslims where they meet Jesus in a mosque. Now, this may offend our sensibility a little bit. To talk about religion in this sense, doesn't this endanger Christian uniqueness? You know, aren't the religions contradictory? And yet it can also be argued that the best of religion, as in the wise men, the best of humanity, is always preparation for the gospel. All the major theistic traditions, I think they claim things that we can affirm. That humanity as a whole, first of all, has a knowledge of God in some form Or another, that a perfect ignorance of God apparently is an impossibility. We believe that Christianity, rightly understood, certainly it's truer than any other faith, or it contains the ultimate truth to which other faiths aspire, but that does not reduce all religions, all other religions, to falsehood, right? No one really acquainted with the the claims of the major religions of the world can fail to notice that they say very similar things to what Judaism and Christianity say. God is transcendent, God has an infinite fullness of being, that God is omnipotent, all-powerful, that God is omnipresent, that God is omniscient, all-knowing, that it is from him whom all things come. In fact, Paul quotes pagan poets to say this, that in him we live and move and have our being. It seems that religion at its best will affirm existence comes from God. And they would all affirm God is spirit. God is not an object to be located in space. He's not subject to the limitations of time. He's not a product of nature. He's not simply a craftsman who formed the world. In many crucial respects, they're recognizably talking about the same God. Just a year or so ago, a professor at Wheaton Seminary was actually fired for saying what I'm saying now. Now, all sorts of obstacles are thrown up in our path. You know, there are obstacles of culture, principalities and powers, the power of death, the power of the devil. But Christ came to defeat these obstacles. And I think that's the picture here. Oh, here are these wise men coming to Christ, and their religion is complete. Now, this is Paul's attitude toward idolatry and the religion of the Athenians. And maybe it was a peculiarly bad religion, because apparently they had an idol to an unknown god. He mentions the fact that they are very religious, they have many idols, but he chooses that idol to begin to explain the gospel. And he even references throughout his speech to the Athenians, their religious poets, their philosophy. And so Paul doesn't bother refuting their religion. He just says, well, your own religion teaches you about God. And I think we can say that to many religionists of the world. In our day, maybe, you know, what is the bad religion? And probably is it not religion at all, but philosophical atheism. And I just don't find it any more impressive than Athenian idolatry. Philosophical atheism is a kind of oxymoron. It's self-contradictory in that it rationally defends a world that is irrational. Philosophical atheism is something on the order of idolatry in that I think it's just a mere superstition. Now having said that, I think there is a more respectable atheism. There is a form of atheism which embraces nihilism, no meaning, irrationality ultimate darkness, and this nihilistic understanding, maybe the best or worst form of atheism, in a sense it's very close to the kingdom of God. Because this darkest atheism recognizes the choice is not between, oh, one rational system and a more rational system. The choice is between meaning and non-meaning. The choice is between nothing and something. The choice is between good and evil. The choice is between love, I believe, ultimately, and disgust with the world. And maybe when when we're children, as children, we're all confronted with the mystery of everything. Why why are the stars there? Why do the stars shine at night? Why are there grasshoppers? You know, why is there anything at all? Is a very... Childlike question. As adults, I think we live in the world and maybe we kind of tamp down the mystery. David Bentley Hart puts it this way Wisdom is the recovery of innocence at the far end of experience. It is the ability to see again what most of us have forgotten to see, but now fortified by the ability to translate some of that vision into words however inadequate, there is a point, that is to say, where reason and revelation are one and the same. Isn't that what we see in the wise men? Their astrology, whatever, their science, has led them to view this star which leads them to Christ. The best of religion recognizes maybe what every child intuitively knows. God is not only the ultimate reality that the intellect and the will seek, but is the primordial reality with which all of us are always engaged in every moment of existence and every moment of consciousness, and apart from which we have really no experience of anything whatsoever. As Augustine puts it, God is not only superior, that is beyond my utmost heights, but also interior, more inward to me than my own inmost depths. And in the incarnation, the Lord took his humanity, you know, not from some impersonal humanity, humanity that counts us in, that we are in his image and he then is in ours. He has become one with humanity introducing into it his own hypostatic fusion with humanity. Christ lives in me. That's the only way we can say this, because who I am resembles him, and who he is resembles me. The first Adam is being transformed, as Paul describes it in Romans 5, into the second Adam. And maybe this is a kind of weak, you know, all people weakly realize this in their religion. But we know Adam necessarily presupposes the idea of an integral, shared humanity, which is being redeemed in Christ. That's what we believe about all people, that all people are called. All people are being redeemed. The last phrase in the story. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They bring their gifts as offerings. As Bolgakov said, God gives to every human being the gift of ontological genius. The gift of one's own theme of being. You know, the talent or talents in the gospel parable all people are given a gift. In God, no one is ungifted. All people, the best of religion, the best of nations, they open their cask of gifts to give to Jesus. Now it's true, some may bury their treasures, but presenting the gift of Christ is its multiplication. Here, here is the fulfillment of the religion of the wise men
0: forging plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship if you have found this podcast valuable please remember to share on social media if you have questions about what you've heard or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with forging plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.